continue tonight uh, our series that we've been doing, of course, on personal evangelism, how we can talk about Jesus in, in, a, in a way that doesn't make us feel like we're going to throw up because we're so nervous, and in a way that actually comes across and makes sense to somebody else who needs desperately to hear the gospel. And uh, so tonight we're going to get to, um, to what is the gospel. Uh, before we talk about it with somebody else, we certainly have to know what it is. Tonight is going to be a little bit probably of a refresher for many of you, but I hope to be able to give you something that, that maybe you've sort of had this abstract thought and language, and you sort of talk in biblical language sometimes, and maybe this can put some, some street language on it, if that makes sense. Understand how we can talk to somebody who is actually uh, in front of us. Here's what I'd like to do, open it up. I want you to think of if you are... Ideal scenario. Let's just paint the ideal scenario. You are face-to-face with someone that is wanting to know what does the gospel mean, what is it, and how must I be saved. Okay? Let's just say it's ideal. And, and that person has come to you and said, look, please tell me what is this whole message that you're talking about and how can I receive Jesus? What would, what would be something you would share with them? And you don't have to give your, your full dissertation on this unless you want to. What are the elements that you'd have to tell them? What, what must be conveyed in order for somebody to understand, okay, that's what the gospel is, and that's what I must do in order to be saved? If anybody's bold enough to share, what would be one of the elements that you'd say, this has to be included? Anybody? Okay, Jesus died for you. Absolutely. What else? Okay, confess with your mouth that he is Lord, um, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, and you'll be saved. Think about that particular verse, Bill, and some of this we'll just kind of navigate through, and I appreciate, uh, always appreciate your involvement and interaction. When, when you tell somebody, and, and certainly we, some of us grew up, uh, as, as I did, and, and as a very young child, I memorized a lot of scripture from the King James Version. Um, and uh, sometimes that, as far as a street kind of language, talking with someone can get a little bit, and I'm not really sure what that means. Uh, some of you still read that, and it's very readable and understandable to you, no problem. But when we tell somebody to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, what exactly are we telling them to do? You're right on, and I know you understand. I'm not trying to, it's not a trick question. I'm not trying to come behind you. But what are we, what are we telling them in a very real and practical way? What does that mean? Okay, change their heart and their mind. Anybody else? I don't have a, anything written down here that I'm trying to look for. I just, I'm just, let's think about it. I'm sorry? Okay, explain that, who they are. Okay, okay. All right, okay, we're all, we're all sinful. Okay, absolutely, there's a guy, somebody to answer to. You know, when you tell somebody that, that they need to confess the Lord, that Jesus is Lord, obviously we have to dethrone the self, take ourselves off the throne of our life. And that is the hardest thing to do. That is, that is the number one reason why people don't get saved, is they're unwilling to dethrone themselves. I and mean, think about it. And then put Jesus on that throne. He has to be Lord. He has to be in charge. And so we say with our mouth, Jesus is He's in charge of my life. Uh, and believe at the same time in our heart that, that the, what the Bible said actually happened. What are some other elements? What, what else would you have to say to somebody? What would they 
have to understand. We've mentioned some things. What what else? Okay. Yeah, faith is an absolute necessary element of all of this. Yeah. We do, absolutely. We all need a Savior. Yeah. That's, that's another part of it. Since, as Chris mentioned, since we are all sinners, every one of us, we all then, as a result, need a Savior. What else? Any, anything else? Like, you know, not a trick question. It's like this morning. I'm not trying to trick you. I'm just, let's think about it. A lot of times we, I, I think it's real easy for us to assume uh, that, that folks know and they understand. I don't know if you're like that. Sometimes I am. I, I, I go back to my experience only because that's what I've got. I grew up in church. That's all I've ever known. And so the people that I've been around and mostly grown up with, they all knew too. So it's real easy sometimes to just assume that somebody knows that. That, that if I tell them, look, you, you need to be saved, well, they'll think, well, okay, well, I need, to, you know, I need to admit that I'm a sinner and I need to believe in Jesus and I need to come in. I tell oh, okay, they don't always understand that. You probably run into that more so nowadays. Any other parts of that, any other elements that you would say, this is going to be there, yes, sir? question has been posed by Jimmy Bell. The issue is that a lot of times people know what to do. They know the information. Man, Jimmy mentioned this was the way he was. But are unwilling to relinquish control of their life to Jesus Christ. How do you how do you present that to somebody? How do you help them understand or, as Jimmy mentioned, convince them that that's what they have to do? What do you think? Okay. 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 Absolutely. The Lord needs to be working on their heart. How would you? How do you? When you say prepare the way, what, what do you? What do you mean there? That's a good point. Absolutely. Be praying for that person specifically if you know that that's who you're going to be interacting with or just sort of in general, just, uh, Lord, give me opportunity. And the opportunities I have, I pray that you would begin to work on those hearts and so on. That's good. What else? How do you, how do you help somebody understand or convince them if possible that you got to give up control? You know, a lot of it, uh, we discount, I think, the fact that we, not because of any doing on our own, but because of what God has, has done in our hearts and lives, we have a story that, that can be impactful to somebody. You know, for the longest time, I thought that, you know, my testimony, I, I got saved when I was eight years old. I don't really remember a whole lot of sins before then. I knew I needed a Savior, but, um, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I've not done a whole lot of uh, things in my life that I look back and say, ooh, 
I was just, you know, I, that was just the way it was for me. I just, in my, my, whatever. But, you know, it's interesting that there, there were opportunities all over the place to just veer off that course. And so the grace that I've seen most in my life, the story that I have to tell, is God keeping me on the right path. Not necessarily. Some of you have these radical stories, and, I, and those are great. They're both redemption stories. There's nothing more powerful about one than about the other. And so sharing our experience a lot of times is very powerful. You know, it's interesting. I was reading something this past week, and, and Jimmy kind of talking, hitting on, on what you were asking about. And I think if you can get somebody maybe to begin to talk about or to think about what them having control of their life has brought them to, and really, really get them to drill down on that. And I don't mean, you know, that we talk about their money or where they live or things like that, things they've accomplished. But really, how, how has that, how is our society, and, and, and follow me for just a second, we are in control of our society. Let's think about it. As Americans, and I saw a commercial today, and, and it was, I didn't have the sound on it. But I thought, there's another me commercial. It was a, it was a diagram. I think it was a bank commercial. And it had a picture of a person in the middle and all these little arrows kind of pointing to it that just had you right across it. And everything just pointed toward you. Is that not our society? I mean, I didn't have to have the sound on it. I think, well, there we are in America. Everything is about you. But do you realize that violent crime, divorce rates, suicide, all those different kinds of factors that point towards sort of hopelessness and, and just a, a broken fabric in our society, all those sorts of indicators, Point to the fact that with us in charge, life has been sort of empty. And some of you have experienced that kind of stuff, and you just think, yeah, I know. And, 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 and maybe if you can talk with somebody and they say, you know, you know, I'm pretty successful, I do this, do that. But if you can get them to see that overall in society, what we have created is a very empty place, a very shallow and hollow experience. And, and, and so, you know, that's... That may be one way that you can you can go back to it. I, I do go back to what Randy said, though. And the truth is that we can't convince anybody to be saved. Um, I'd love to. I would love to be able to talk with every person that I know, and just if I just spell it out just right and say the right words, that poof, there it is. And I, you know, I've done it. But if God's not working on their heart, nothing's going to happen. I mean, that's a, salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit, not the work of me or you or anybody else. And so. That's difficult. It's a, it's a balance between what our responsibility is in presenting it clearly and letting them know, and then God's ultimate responsibility of, of performing salvation. So any other things that you would say? If a person says, what, what do I need to do in order to be saved? What do you, what do you tell them? Okay. Okay. Okay, repentance, obviously. Every time that the, the Bible mentions, um, you know, the, the terminology surrounding salvation, repentance is always there. Always. Repent and believe. Now, those two things go hand in hand. Dethrone yourself, turn around from all of that, a radical turnaround, and, and then believe and trust in Jesus. Uh, I want to I give you, we'll, we'll hand this out, and we'll, we'll just roll through this fairly quickly tonight. Maybe something that you can just take and kind of pour over and then begin to construct a way or a terminology that you might use uh, based upon somebody who, who may, in fact, um, you know, be, be ready to, to receive a little random with your help me hand these out if you don't mind. Thank you. I'll start in the back. 
imagine that. I counted four. There are three and four. Imagine that. <laughs> oh, ye of little faith. <laughs> I've got two there. Maybe one more. Let's look on page one, and, and certainly these each week, they all look the same, meant to maybe give you uh, a way of, you know, you've got a binder or something, punch holes in them, stick them in there, and hang on to it. So you, um, you know, maybe go for personal study some more later on. Um, obviously, before we talk about the gospel of somebody, as I mentioned, we've got to know what it is that we're saying. We don't want to, to go into a conversation really not knowing what it is. Now, the first thing that we have to, I think, sort of understand is the gospel is not a product that we're trying to sell. <clears throat> the gospel is not a product that we're trying to sell. There, <clears throat> there are models of church leadership and, and so on that would tell you that uh, the pastor is the CEO, uh, the, the uh, staff maybe are, you know, is the, uh, you know, sort of the, uh, the understudies and so on, the people that will, will go and get the work done. Uh, the, the gospel, the message is the product that we're trying to sell. The, uh, the, the uh, constituency or the, the, the consumers are out there somewhere, and we need to figure out a way to market this thing to them so that uh, they will be compelled to flock toward uh, the church and, and buy the product. If we, if we market the gospel as some product, then understand that what we have done is sort of line it up with all the other options people have. And uh, certainly we know that it is much more important, life-altering, life-forever uh, kind of important. It does not need to be viewed as or marketed, so to speak, as just one more product. That doesn't negate the fact, obviously, that, that at church and in our lives, we want to do everything we can uh, to make an incredible first impression on folks with the love of God. And when they enter our building, we want them to... Uh, to feel as if we take what we do seriously and we try to do it the best we can, no question. Uh, but it's not a product uh, that we're trying to sell. It is much more uh, than that. Romans 1.16 says that it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel message is the power of God for salvation. Uh, it is the only thing uh, that, that is conveyed that can, uh, with God's power, obviously produce salvation. In 1 Corinthians 15 uh, Paul talks about, he said, the, the gospel is basically this. Jesus died and he rose again. Uh, Jesus died and rose again. And, and that is the, the core message of the gospel. And so let's look at then some, some elements. And we've, we've hit on a lot of these, and this, as I said, will be a review for many of you. Uh, but uh, but let's, let's look at this. Let's sort of go from beginning to end, I guess, so to speak. We were created to glorify God. The Bible makes it clear. That's our purpose. Our purpose is not to fill up some void in God's life that he was lonely and decided he needed some friends. That's not it. We were made to glorify him, to share in his glory, to, to experience him. We were made to glorify God. Then Romans 3.23, of course, is, as we talked about, uh, mentions the fact that we have all sinned. And then at the, the end of that verse says, and fallen short of the glory of God or fallen short of our original purpose of glorifying God. We, we've messed up. We have sinned. And though we think that it is us, we, that have the problem with sin, ultimately God has a problem with our sin. It's offensive to a perfect and holy God. 
God has a problem with it. And so, you know, it's interesting, a lot of times what we'll do, and I, and I'm, I fall prey to this a lot, is focus on the fact that we have a sin problem that we need to get rid of in order for us to be whole and for us to be made different. And that's true. But what is more important is that God has a sin problem that he cannot tolerate, and, and something had to be done about that, or else, as we'll see, all of us, as I mentioned this morning, simply just deserve hell for eternity. That's it. So God's problem with sin has to be dealt with. Sin deserves God's wrath and punishment. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's what, that's what we deserve. Death is the deserved outcome. So certainly in our world today, and just sort of overarching, we see the effects of sin. And ultimately, it all ends in death. You think about it. Um, a hard life, uh, disease, tough relationships, whatever it may be, ultimately it all sort of leads toward one point, that's that we die. Um, the, the world uh, faces catastrophes and, and different things. It's, it's because of the evil of sin in our world. Does that mean that, well, this person died, so they must have committed some sin? Not necessarily. It's not the point. But the point is, because of sin and its effects, death is the deserved outcome, and ultimately it, it, it will be the outcome. And of course, we're talking about a spiritual death, not just a physical death. The sinner or a substitute must die. The sinner or a substitute. And this is the way God has set it up. Of course, in the Old Testament, we see that uh, that the substitute was a, was an animal of some sort, a sacrifice that had to be made. The substitute, of course, in the New Testament is Jesus Christ himself. And so the, the, whole, the whole idea of the sacrificial system, be it the Old Testament or the New Testament, was that either the sinner had to die or a, or a substitute had to die in his place. Now, now, we can thank God that he does not just immediately crush us as soon as we commit a sin because he gives us the opportunity for that substitute to make a payment. But understand this, that substitute, that sinner, the next thing there, only a perfect, innocent payment is acceptable to God. A perfect and innocent payment. Anybody know anything about what the requirements were in the Old Testament for sacrifices, just, just sort of in general? Unblemished, yeah, just just a, a perfect animal, and typically, typically it was uh, the, the fattened animal. It was the, the best. It was the first, the firstborn, or or if it was a grain offering, some of the first fruits they'd call it. It was it was off the top, the best they had to offer. And of course, people got themselves in trouble when they began to offer sacrifices that weren't the top. You look from the very beginning, Cain and Abel. Uh, you know, why was it that Cain's offering was rejected and Abel's offering was received? Uh, it says that, that Abel gave out of the best of what he had, and Cain, it says, gave some. There's a difference, and I think that Moses worded it that way to help us understand it had to be the best, only a perfect, innocent payment. You think about the, the um, just as a side note, the, you know, the temple, the tabernacle, the, the place of worship, up until the time of Jesus, was a slaughterhouse. You think about it. That's where they brought their sacrifices, and that's where those sacrifices were made. Um, I, I don't know that the people would completely have understood it. We have, the, 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 obviously, the help of hindsight, but it was an absolute slaughterhouse. I'm sure it reeked of blood and dead animals and just sort of foreboding and giving 
sort of a, here, here's a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. You want to know what sin costs us? Just smell blood everywhere. Just look around. Animals just slaughter. And in the temple. Imagine if that were still the case today. Every Sunday morning we'd come, or once a year, whatever it would be, we'd come and we'd slaughter all the animals right here in the sanctuary. You know, I mean, think about it. But that's what sin costs us. Only a perfect, innocent payment is acceptable to God. He accepts nothing other than that. And then the next thing there, to satisfy or to quench his wrath. And because of his great love for people, God sent Jesus to die for sin. And the Bible says to literally become sin on our behalf so that we can be changed into the righteousness of God. This is a, this is a dual thing. We, we need to, to understand both of these, that in order to fix God's problem with sin and to fix our problem with sin, Jesus was sent. God's problem with sin is, I don't tolerate it. There has to be a payment. The only payment is, is perfect and innocent. There's Jesus, perfect and innocent, sinless life. Our problem is we owe a debt that is only payable by a perfect and innocent sacrifice, which is not us, or a substitute. So Jesus takes our place. Understand that they're not either or, they're both and. They go together. And so in order to satisfy God's wrath, to, to turn his anger away from us, and because of his great love for people, he sent Jesus. And so through his death, we can be made right with God. That's how we are justified, the Bible says. We are lined up back to where we should be, made right with God. His anger was turned away from sinful humans and on to his son Jesus, who literally became sin on our behalf. You know, in the New Testament, it says, you know, God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experiencing God turning his back. I'm not going to look at sin. I can't be a part of it. And so through his death, we are made right with God. Our guilt, our, our death that we have was transferred to Jesus and paid. And so we then... We are made right with God. He rose again, proving his claims as Messiah and as the Son of God. He told him what he was going to do. And the, the Old Testament gives the foreshadowing, the prophecy that the Messiah would have to die and rise again. And so he proved his claims as Messiah, and he promised to return one day. This is, I think, an important part of the gospel that sometimes I leave out. And, and the fact that Jesus is coming back. We, we, we focus a lot, which is what we should. We focus a lot on the fact that he died and he rose again. And that's true. But one day he said, I'm coming back and I'm returning and I'm going to judge the world. And, and, and Jimmy, you know, if you think about how do I convince somebody that they need to turn their life over to God, one thing is to show them Jesus said everything that was prophesied about Jesus all came true or will one day come true. And he said he's coming back. So, so you, you can roll the dice, if you'd like, and just say, well, I'm not sure I believe that. I kind of believe everything else. I'm, I, I get it. I understand the message or whatever. But if you believe, if you believe the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and you've got to believe the other promise, he's coming back. And we, before we die, have to make a choice. And so the next part, there are only those who have repented and believed. Only those who have repented and believed. And that is trusting fully in Jesus receive eternal life and escape God's judgment. Only those who have repented and believed. There are a lot of folks who, who wish that weren't the case, uh, who will, will be sadly mistaken. And I, I wish that weren't the case. We probably have family members and people in our church that are, that are sort of, they really, they're a good person. Uh, they like people. They're, they're nice to be around. But they have never dethroned themselves. 
and made Jesus in charge of their life. And they've never done that. And so it's only those who have repented and believed that receive eternal life and escape God's judgment. Because the truth is this, God will punish those who do not believe in an eternal hell. Again, a lot of this stuff you're thinking, yeah, I, I get this. But these are the things that we have to convey to other people. We can't sugarcoat it. We can't tell them that, you know, God just wants you to be kind of his friend and do some good things and, you know, that, that'll be good enough. Just, look, just come to church and that, that'll be fine. We have to let them know in as loving a way as we can that those who do not believe will be punished for all eternity. God is a God of love and he's a God of justice all at the same time. Because of his justice, he does not tolerate sin, but because of his love, he gave us a substitute. But in the end, both of those are going to weigh out. Those who, who are still under his, his loving sacrifice of Jesus will spend eternity in heaven. Those who do not believe will face his justice and his punishment. And so we don't need to sugarcoat that. Obviously, we need to figure out a way that we can present that to somebody in a way that helps them understand. And I think the next part then sort of, Kind of balances that out. Though God will punish those who do not believe, Jesus came to save sinners and make them disciples. Paul said that. This is a statement that is trustworthy and, and, and it says worthy of full acceptance. That Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he goes on to say, of whom I am the worst. And we probably all say that at some point or another. And he came to, to save sinners and make them disciples. Look what he did with the people that he hung out with. Uh, that was his purpose. Jesus came to save sinners and make them disciples. Salvation, of course, we know cannot be earned by good works. Salvation cannot be earned by good works. One of the interesting things that we looked at, I think two or three weeks ago, was the fact that the, the study that Tom Renner did on the unchurched, how many of them, even the people that, that understood the message, that got it, still thought that you had to combine something I have to do to receive salvation. Well, surely, I, okay, yeah, that's great. I need to kind of believe that. And I probably need to do this too. No, no, hold on. It is a free gift of God. Believe and you will be saved. That's what the Bible says. So we understand it cannot be earned by good works, nor do we add good works to the salvation message. It is simply believing and, and trusting in the Lord for salvation. And so... In our world today, this next point I think is fairly important. This is not one way of many, but the only way. It's not one way of many, but the only way. In your conversations with people, Nancy and I were having a, a talk about this earlier this week. Um, I think it's important for us to, to note and to, to not give in to the social pressure, whether you realize it or not, to say to somebody, if I were talking to Bill and he, and he were not a, not a believer, and we were having a conversation, and, and, and I presented the gospel in such a way that, well, this is, this is what I believe. This is my belief, and, and this is, you know, I understand that it may not be what you believe. Uh, subtly in there, what we have done is let them know that, well, this is, this is what works for me. This is what I have found to be true instead of this is what is true whether I believe it or not. It's not the depth of my belief that makes it true in any way. And sadly, to many people today, that's what they think. If I really believe something, well, that makes it really true. You, know, you probably know folks like that. Maybe you've, you've fought those same tendencies. It's not that that makes it true. It is true, therefore, the depth of my belief is, is drastically affected. But it's not based upon the depth of my belief. So we have to convey to people that, look, this is what I believe. But it's not me believing it that makes it true. It's true, so I believe it. 
And, and that's an important point because we can easily convince people or easily let them believe that, well, this is what I believe. It works for me. Now, listen, you need to figure out what you believe and what works for you. And so think about it. And this, this Jesus thing really works, so believe it. No, it, it, it. It's not true because it works, but it works because it's true. Does that make sense? I hope you're following me. I'm not trying to confuse you anyway. It's not true because it works, but it works because it's true. There, and there's a huge difference in, in that mentality. Yeah. For 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, they, 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 it's the dark ages of spirituality. There was no, there was no, nothing that came from God, or, or we wouldn't have record of it. It would be, you know, the inspired scripture. But there's 400 years of sort of darkness, and it's in that gap that a lot of people started to reach for. I'll be the authority. We'll be the authority. We'll, we'll help. And, and we have to give it to the Pharisees that they had a deep love and respect for the law of God, but they had gotten off course and set themselves up as the authority. And Jesus came and said, "Look, well, no, no, hold on." You know, this is, this, I am the authority. Uh, and and that's, that's an excellent point. Um, you know, they, that Jesus is the only way. Uh, it's not through fulfilling all of the law, uh, not through following all the rules. You know, we can establish rules and put them up on the wall here, and if we check those off, some people say, well, well I'm good. Elm Grove says, I'm good. All right. But what does Jesus have to say? <laughs> it has to go through him. That's a great point. To believe is to deny oneself and completely follow Jesus. To believe is to deny oneself and completely follow Jesus. It's, it's an about face. That, that's the result of coming to know Jesus. It does not mean that you will never sin again. It does not mean that you are all of a sudden made perfect. Unfortunately, we still have, while we are here on earth, a human nature. That is transformed, but not completely eliminated. And so we will have times where we fall into sin. As I mentioned this morning, potentially the same five sins over and over and over again. But it does mean that our life is different. Our heart is altered. Our, 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 we're refocused a different way. It's an about face to deny ourselves and completely follow Jesus. The gospel is a stumbling block. It's a stumbling block. Paul said that. There's no way around it. A person must decide for or against belief and commitment to Jesus. It's it's a stumbling block. It's a good one, but it nonetheless is a stumbling block. And a lot of folks, as Jimmy mentioned, have um, trouble with realizing if that's what it means, then this is what I have to do. Mm. I'm not sure. And it is a stumbling block. There is, as I said, no way around it. They must decide for or against. What follows there and what we'll close with is this. Uh, I was reading in a, in a book, and you'll see it down at the bottom there, a guy named Mark Dever wrote a book called The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. And he uh, challenges his people. He's a pastor of a church in Washington, D.C. And he challenges people to, uh, to, to sort of 
discover and figure out and construct a way that they would present the gospel in, in a minute or less. Obviously, what we've just walked through, if you tried to present all that in a minute or less, you're in trouble. It ain't going to happen. And you, you realize that, that tonight we're just trying to get, let's get the nuts and bolts and let's put it in some terminology we can understand. But if you're going to be talking to somebody, make sure that you can present it as quickly and as succinctly and clearly as possible. So I would encourage you to do the same. Um, look at what he, this is what he wrote in, in his book. The good news of the gospel is that the one and only God who is holy made us in, him, in his image to know him, but we sin and cut ourselves off from him. In his great love, God became a man in Jesus, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross, thus fulfilling the law himself and taking on himself the punishment for the sins of all those who ever turn and trust him. He rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that God's wrath against us had been exhausted. He now calls us to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. If we repent of our sins and trust Christ, we are born again into new life and eternal life with God. I I would encourage you, uh, spend some time this week. Some of you maybe have a little bit of free time here and there. Spend some time this week. Maybe go back over the list that we've looked at. Uh, maybe look at what Mark Dever wrote and, and think of a way. If somebody comes up to you and you just out of nowhere, you get this opportunity and you don't have much time and you want to present it clearly and succinctly, what would you say? And so we have to know what the gospel is and how it is that we should should use it and so on. And, and as we close tonight, I, I don't want to be simply mechanical with the gospel. I, I want us to all realize and maybe take just a moment. And celebrate the fact that the things that we've talked about, that we've got written down on paper, are not just facts and terms and things like that. But it is, it is, it is the absolute greatest message that the world has ever known. It is our hope. It is our life. It is, as Paul said, the power of God unto salvation. And we have no hope apart from the gospel, apart from Jesus coming. And yet at the same time, because of him, we have tremendous hope. And we receive the love of God and salvation. I hope that your heart never, ever gets tired of hearing about the gospel of Jesus and that that something inside of you and something inside of me sort of gets excited thinking, yeah, you know what, today is another day to enjoy the fact that God has extended salvation to me and love through Jesus Christ. And so I want to celebrate the gospel, celebrate what he has done. This is not just something to be mechanical about, memorize a certain few facts, and be able to present it all in a minute, and there I have done it. Something to, to live in and to celebrate. It is our life. And so um, so as we close, I just uh, want to sort of close with that in mind, that, that the gospel is not something that we are trying to sell, though we look at it and we try to package it as best we can to help people understand. It is absolutely uh, the, the greatest message of love and redemption the world has, has ever known. Let's pray and then we'll close with a song. Lord, thankful for the gospel. Lord, um, Sometimes that can become sort of mundane to us. We hear it so often. We've known it maybe for a long time. And yet, Lord, this week I pray that you would remind us daily uh, that without you, apart from you, that we, we simply would deserve nothing but punishment. But because of the great love that you have for us, you have sent Jesus. Lord, remind us of that this week. May we celebrate that and live with joy and with excitement. May people see in us a confidence in you they find nowhere else in this world. We love you. We thank you for each person that is here. We ask these things in Jesus' name.